The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7 today. There is, if you grab, if you had a bulletin uh, as you were coming in, uh, an outline on the back of that, if that's helpful for you, following along in our study of God's Word today. Uh, if you are visiting today or you haven't been here in a while, just so you know, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. Um, God gave the New Testament not just to the church 2,000 years ago. He gave the entire New Testament and the whole Word of God uh, to His church perpetually. And He wants His people to read and study the whole counsel of God in the New Testament so that we might learn how to be a church and also how to be individual Christians in honoring Him. And 1 Corinthians, all 16 chapters, is a vital part of that message of how to conduct ourselves in a way that pleases God corporately with the church, corporately in the world, and also uh, among ourselves as individual Christians. We are now in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Today we're looking at verses uh, 2 through 6. We're going to actually get all the way up to verse 6 today. If you hadn't been here, just so you know, we've already done part 1 and part 2, which was preliminary to this section that was so important and foundational. It's been a week covering just the meaning of verse 1. And then after that, an introduction to verses 2 through 6, which was last time I spoke two weeks ago. So uh, to get caught up, it would be important and recommended that you somehow uh, get to listen to that sermon on the web, and that will bring you up to speed of where we're at. So today's sermon is called Fulfilling Marital Intimacy, and it's really part two, Fulfilling Marital Intimacy in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 6. So we have the privilege of Uh, going over what the Holy Spirit of God spoke through Paul to the Corinthian church. Follow along as I just read, actually, verses 1 through 7, which goes together. The Apostle Paul writes, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all people were, or all believers were, even as I myself am. However, each one has his own gift from God, one gift in this manner and another in that. So let's look specifically at verses 2 through 6 in your outline there. I've broken this down into four points to help us. Um, and just as a prelude to be reminded that the way we approach preaching and the New Testament and Scripture and church is we just preach whatever God has put before us. And that's the topic that we want to talk about. And we are not afraid of any topic. If it's in the Word of God, it needs to be known as the full counsel of God. And uh, some subjects are different than others. Some are more sensitive than others. And so we happen to be in a section of a very sensitive subject. And a lot of different perspectives by different Christians, even throughout church history. Uh, today we're talking about sexual intimacy. Uh, if you're visiting today, uh, you might be wondering, hmm, should I have come today? Well, <laughs> in God's providence, that's where we are in the Word of God. We shouldn't be ashamed of the Word of God. Uh, God wants us to hear this message. We need to hear this message. God's uh, gift, His guidelines, His purpose for physical and sexual intimacy, for He has made every single one of us in His image, And part of being made in the image of God is being a procreative and also uh, physical and sexual being. That's how God made us. Uh, That is nothing to be ashamed of. That is to be celebrated, especially from God's point of view. So verses 2 through 6. Let's go ahead and look at point number 1 in verse 2 where Paul says, But because of immoralities, that's the New American Standard, by the way, that I'm reading. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Uh, And the way I summarized it there, the command here, and this is a command, by the way, to believers, serve your spouse 
and prevent sexual immorality. That's really what Paul's trying to say here by way of summarizing the point. But as we're getting into this section, I put a little heading there summarizing what is Paul saying in verses 2 through 6 anyway. And if I could summarize it in a sentence, I put it there for you. It is sinful to withhold intimacy, sexual intimacy in marriage. So just let me ask you again, if you are married, can you just raise your hand real quick? Okay, and be proud of it. There you go. Good. Put your hand down. Wonderful. So if you are married, this message is specifically for you. Whether you are uh, equally yoked to Christians in a marriage or unequally yoked, a Christian and you're married to an unbeliever. It doesn't matter. This message is for you. It's for me. I am married. So that's the important context to keep in mind. And the overarching principle Paul is trying to get to here with the Corinthians is it is sinful to withhold intimacy in marriage. So he's dealing with a problem in the Corinthian church. The Corinthians had a problem. They had a wrong view of marriage. They had a wrong view of singleness in many regards. They had a wrong view of physical intimacy with respect to marriage and inside of marriage for a lot of reasons. Uh, The Corinthians got saved in a very pagan society. And really a a non-scriptural society. They were not educated in the Bible. They didn't grow up in the synagogue. They didn't learn the Old Testament growing up like Jews did. They didn't have a believing, God-centered worldview. So they had all kinds of a, a distorted, messed up, mixed up worldview about all of life, including intimacy, marriage, singleness, and sexuality. And so Paul is dealing with a hodgepodge of worldviews in one Christian church, and he's trying to get them all on the same page with respect to uh, these believers' view of marriage and sexual intimacy. And in the Corinthian society, as far as we could tell, in the Greek society, and they were a part of the Roman society, they were part of a pagan society with uh, a cosmopolitan city where they live, so they're getting inundated with all kinds of different competing, disparate worldviews, all of which conflict with what the Bible says about sexuality. So depending upon who the Corinthian Christian was, who knows what their view of was marriage and of sexuality. Because even in Corinth, among the Greeks and the pagans, they were on both ends of the spectrum. You had some Greek pagans uh, that their view of sex was to abstain from sex in all forms was the highest form of spirituality or mysticism or way to reach the gods and the purest form of conducting yourself as abstinence at all costs, even if you were married. And even some religions still and worldviews believe that today. Then on the other end of the spectrum in Corinth was that anything goes and everything goes in terms of sexuality and sexual license and perversion. And it could even be a very religious thing. And so in Corinth they had what were called temple prostitutes. And adultery was not frowned upon and all kinds of sexual deviation wasn't frowned upon either. Much of it was celebrated and even considered to be holy, spiritual, and religious. So they're all over the map. And they don't have a biblical worldview. And so they need to be brought in tune with God's perfect will regarding sexuality, specifically in marriage, at least in this text. So just so you know, that's what Paul is doing. His target audience in these first uh, five, six verses are married people, married couples uh, that have a minimum of one believer in the relationship. But it could be two believers married together or one believer married to an unbeliever. These principles still apply to the Corinthians. They were incredibly confused. And it, it, from the context, it seems like the Corinthians were confused uh, and they came to the understanding or notion that once they became a Christian, that to be really spiritual, they need to abstain from worldly things, fleshly practices. And some Corinthians got mixed up and thought that any form of sexuality was a worldly endeavor and should be abstain from, even if it was in the context of marriage. And that's what Paul is correcting. He's correcting their thinking. No, you made the wrong conclusion. Yeah, I agree with you that it's a good thing not to touch a woman. That is, if you're not married. You shouldn't be touching a woman if you're not married. That's verse 1. But don't apply that to the marriage relationship. And thinking that you're being super spiritual if you are abstaining from sexuality and sexual intimacy in your marriage. That's not spiritual. That's wrong. That is sinful. That is destructive. And you're setting yourself up and you become vulnerable to the attacks of Satan himself. And you jeopardize the purity and the unity of your marriage. So that is his context. That is the argument. And with that, let's look at Paul, what he specifically says. He's four points that I've come up with regarding fulfilling marital intimacy. And the first one I said, Paul's command here in verse 2, is that uh, serve your spouse and as a result prevent sexual immorality. Look at the beginning of verse 2. 
Paul says, but because of immoralities. Immorality is the Greek word porneia. I think, oh, that sounds familiar. Pornography. That's exactly where we get the word pornography in the English language. In the Greek New Testament, that word is used many times. And it's a generic umbrella term. And it means all kinds of inappropriate sexual behavior. So it's a very general term. It it includes anything that is uh, sexuality outside the confines of marriage. So it includes, for today, today, uh, for us, it would include pornography. Uh, Looking at inappropriate images and those kind of things. Uh, Pornography also includes adultery, homosexuality, uh, self-satisfaction that's illegitimate, sexually speaking. So it's that big umbrella term. And Paul says this is not tolerated at all. This is not the will of God. Uh, pornography or porneia. Uh, sex should only uh, happen between husband and wife in the context of marriage. But Paul is a realist. He knows that we are sinful. Humans are fallen. They walk with feet of clay. Uh, they have sin living inside of them. There are temptations in the world. There is a devil that is real. There is a world that is fallen. And as a result, we need to put up safeguards and we need to be reminded of the truth and built up with the truth to help us in this area. And Paul wants Christian marriages to be successful. And key to that is understanding how you should relate to your spouse in terms of physical intimacy. And Paul says one of the things we need to do is guard against sexual temptation and sexual immorality. So verse 2, a couple of other things you need to know about verse 2 up front. Verse 2 is a command to married people. It is not a command to single people. I probably have like 20, 30 commentaries on 1 Corinthians. And my routine is just to study the text in context, in the Greek, the original language. And then after that, thinking I understand what it's communicating, then go through the commentaries of trusted men of God over the years who've been gifted by God to teach the church and just to make sure my conclusions are in line with what the church has believed as a stewardship of truth. And so uh, I did that this week. And what I'm giving you is what the consensus is clearly from the context about what Paul is talking about. So in verse 2, Paul is commanding people who are married. This is not a command to single people. Some people, uh, there were a couple commentaries that didn't quite understand this and they thought this command was to single people and Paul is is commanding them to get married. That is not what he's saying in this verse. He he addresses single people later on in this chapter. This command is to marry people. And that's why when I had you raise your hand, this message is for you if you're married. For you, your husband, your wife, for you as a couple. So first and foremost, we need to accept that and take that. And because it is a command and it comes from God, it is not an option. It's not optional. If you're a Christian, this needs to be understood. This needs to be implemented. This needs to be obeyed before the Lord on a regular basis. So it is a command. It's a command for married couples. It is not a command for single people. Uh, it is not an option. It is an edict from Almighty God because He wants the best for you in your marriage. Uh, A couple of other things, that phrase right there, but because of immoralities, literally what Paul is saying is uh, to prevent immorality from seeping into your marriage is what he's saying. You need to do the following. Every marriage is susceptible to temptation. Every marriage is vulnerable to sexual temptation that can mess up and dilute the purity of your marriage relationship. So as a result, here is a preventative measure to protect your marriage. So, And this is a supernatural, God-given preventative measure. So literally, one of the best translation is to prevent sexual immorality from taking place in your marriage, do the following. Well, what must we do on a regular basis? Well, Paul says, to prevent sexual immorality from occurring in your marriage relationship, porneia, to prevent pornography from becoming a problem in your marriage. And we know today, uh, just from people I've counseled over the last 20 years and being a man myself and reading all the counseling books that are out there in the Christian world and the Christian radio programs, we know that this is a problem. Pornography in marriage relationships. Pornography predominantly among the men and husbands in the Christian relationships. We know this to be true. This is why the Word of God is such a beautiful thing because it speaks to us where we are. There is a solution for us. This is a preventative measure, literally, to prevent porneia in your marriage relationship to help prevent pornography from intervening and taking over and destroying your marriage relationship, do the following. God is so practical and helpful. Tremendous advice. 
So what do we do to help prevent pornography or sexual tests and temptations that are not appropriate or adultery or any kind of illegitimate sexual practice in our relationship? Paul says, here is the command, each man, literally each husband. He's talking about married people now. Here's what you need to do, husbands and wives. Each husband is to have his own wife. Uh, the word have was a euphemism that they understood very clearly. It means uh, coitus. It means sexual intercourse. That is the exact same word used in the previous chapter. Chapter 5, verse 1. Remember we read that? where uh, Verse 1 it says, It is actually reported that there is immorality, porneia, among you in the church, and has become public, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. And what is that immorality, Paul? That someone has his father's wife. That's that same verb, have. It's a euphemism. That someone is having intercourse with someone who is not their wife. And it's the exact same phrase Paul is using here. Uh, to have is a euphemism for coitus or intercourse sexual relationship. And so here's what Paul says. If you want to prevent uh, sexual immorality in your marriage, if you want to prevent uh, pornography and other temptations, then each husband needs to have intercourse on a regular basis with his own wife. And not only that, it is mutual. He says, and each wife, each woman is to have ongoing regular sexual intercourse with her own husband. Wow. Paul's being very specific. This is not a shameful thing. This is a blessed thing. God gave uh, the gift of sexuality to humans as a gift from Him. We read 1 Timothy 4 two weeks ago where God said that the gift of marriage and sexual intimacy is a good gift to be enjoyed by God. And false doctrine and doctrines of demons will come along and turn it on its ear and try to get us to believe that sexuality is not a good thing or that it is an embarrassing thing or that it is a shameful thing. And Paul says that is not true. It is a good gift for married people to be enjoyed in an appropriate manner. And Paul says that needs to continue. And this is mutual. Notice he addresses uh, the man, the husband, and the wife. This, is, this was shocking in Paul's day. First, in the Jewish culture. Even among Old Testament Jews. Many of them, illegitimately, had a negative condescending view of women. It, that's just been true almost throughout uh, all of world history. Culture after culture has had a negative condescending view of women. Women are down here. Men are elevated up here. Women don't have all the rights that men do. And that is not a biblical point of view. In the very beginning, God said, let us make humans in our image. And in the image of God, He created them male and female, co-equals before God. Equal dignity before God. Men and women. That's God's point of view. And that is God's point of view coming through here. That in this command to husbands and wives, it is a mutual, reciprocal relationship. It's not that the husband is to be the dominant one. The wife is to be the passive one. The wife is the one to, uh, who doesn't have equal value, equal, equal rights in this relationship. Not true. Every single one of these verses we're going to see is mutual for husband and wife. Each man. And the other thing, the, the two verbs, or the verb used here for uh, intercourse here, it is a present tense verb. It's a present tense command. What does that mean? Well, it's significant. Present tense in the Greek text. It means a continual habit. An ongoing habit. A lifestyle. It is continual. It shouldn't stop. So literally, you could understand verse 2 this way. To prevent any kind and all forms of sexual immorality from creeping into your marriage, to counter that and to give godly maintenance to your relationship in a healthy way, let all husbands keep on having regular intercourse with their own wife. And equally so, let all wives keep on having regular sexual intimacy with their own husband in an ongoing manner. And all of God's people should be saying, Amen. But that is exactly what Paul is saying here. And so, as a result, that's why I put the summary statement there in number one. Serve your spouse. By the way, Having intimacy with your spouse from God's point of view is an act of service. It is an act of giving. It is an act of ministry. It is an act of building up. It is an act of encouraging. It is an act of satisfying and fulfilling. All of this in a way that pleases God. So let's go on to point number two. After serve your spouse and prevent sexual immorality. Second point there in verse 3. Paul says, 
after giving the principle, now he gives, or the command, now he's giving reasons why. Well, here's why. Some of you might be thinking, and you know, married couples have thought this through the ages, where you get married and you love each other and you're on cloud nine and eventually over time you get to know your person better. And you realize it dawns on you after six months or six years that you actually married a fellow sinner. It's like, oh wow, they are not perfect. They have foibles and faults. They have shortcomings. They actually have things that annoy me. And I get irritated with them. And then we hold grudges. And then we are bitter. And then we are unforgiving. And if you don't deal with that, it grows and grows and grows. And what the Hebrews author said becomes a root of bitterness that can poison the entire relationship on a spiritual level like cancer and literally destroy your marriage, your friendship, and your relationship. That is what we call divorce. God hates divorce. That's just a reality. So, that's what Paul is counteracting here. He's trying to keep us sensitive, soft, forgiving hearts, sensitive before Him, sensitive towards our spouse that God has given us as a gift. After all, when we got married, we became one flesh. Her body is my body. My body is her body. We are one entity, no longer two. So that's really Paul's perspective. That's the biblical perspective as we're addressing this. So point number two, verse... Three, the husband must. So, so why do I have to serve my spouse in this way on a regular, ongoing basis? And what I was about to say was that over time we have problems, and, con- and then we need marriage counseling, or we go uh, get a perspective from somebody else to solve all of our problems. And sometimes the core of the problem is right here: that someone, one spouse, is withholding satisfaction to the other one for whatever reason. This, I've seen this in marriage counseling over the years, time and time again. Diagnosing, okay, what is the problem? What's going on? And uh, I, I mean, there are many examples, and I've read it in books, heard it on the radio. This is so true. Uh, here's the typical scenario, and I know there are exceptions to this, but typically, it's uh, you've got the guy, the man, or the husband in the relationship is feeling deprived by his wife physically. Now, I, I know it can be vice versa, but that is the typical scenario. And he's complaining about his wife. Uh, I'm feeling deprived. She doesn't fulfill my sexual desires or needs or enough or on a regular basis. And then uh, you ask the wife, her perspective, is that true? And well, sometimes maybe she'll admit, yeah, it is true. And sometimes she won't or she doesn't understand that that is an issue. Sometimes she'll, she will realize that and say, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do withhold. And uh, as a matter of fact, because I don't respect him or I don't love him or because he doesn't deserve it. I've, I've seen that time and time again and have heard those kind of scenarios that are very realistic, very common. And that's one of the things that Paul is trying to counteract here. That's why this principle in verse number 3 and also 4, 5, and 6 addresses that issue and that wrong mindset. So let's look at it. Point number 2 is serve your spouse and perform your sacred duty. Perform your sacred duty. Duty? That sounds a little crap. That does not sound very romantic, does it? That sounds like a job, a responsibility. Well, that's exactly the terminology Paul has chosen and is using. You don't meet the needs of your husband in terms of sexual intimacy because he deserves it or you feel like he deserves it or because he's earned it based on your conditions. You are to meet his needs because it is your duty, wife, and, Paul says, vice versa. Husband, you are to meet your wife's physical needs because it is your obligation to do so, your duty to do so. That's the terminology Paul uses here. The husband must. And it is a command. This is not an option. Well, my wife, uh, I'm mad at her. She's a nag. She's mean. She's critical. She doesn't deserve it. Wrong answer. She is part of your flesh. You are one with her. She's your God-given responsibility. This is your responsibility. It is your job. It is your duty. That is the terminology that Paul uses here. Fulfill your duty. Uh, some translations say render. The, the literal Greek word refers to a debt that is owed. You owe your spouse this. Pay up. Literally, we could say that. Pay up. That's how Paul's communicating this. This is an obligation. This is a responsibility. By the way, you won't hear this very frequently in uh, Christian counseling books or on uh, marriage relationships for whatever reason. It's just... 1 Corinthians 7 just seems to be missing. But it is so important, it's so vital, and so key. 
So you need to perform your sacred duty and obligation that God given and, and fulfill. He says the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. It must be fulfilled to her satisfaction. And likewise, in reciprocal manner, the wife must fulfill her duty, the debt she owes to her husband. So the main goal here, the main command in verse 3, is that we need to fulfill our duty to our spouse. Okay, I think I understand that. Well, you need to take it a little step further. So this is a challenge for you, husband. This is a challenge for you, wife. How do you know if you are fulfilling your duty to your spouse? That's where the problem is. Many times, uh, one spouse thinks, oh, I'm fulfilling my duty. I'm, I'm performing. I'm doing it frequently enough. I'm satisfying. Well, have you ever asked your spouse if that was true? Most of the time, uh, we don't talk to our spouse and ask them. So that's how we can be sure that we're going to fulfill this properly in a biblical manner. Uh, since we are obligated by God to fulfill a, a duty to our spouse, to satisfy them and fulfill them, the only way that we can know how that is being done is to ask your spouse. You are one flesh with them. You have the right to do that. You should be able and willing to peaceably talk about your intimate relationship with one another. And ask, honey, am I, am I fulfilling you? Am I satisfying you? And if not, uh, how can I do that? And if you're doing it to each other, you are fully satisfying each other. It's a reciprocal, blessed union relationship intended by God. And you will give 100% satisfaction and fulfillment to each other as you serve one another. The problem is, when we do the reverse and we want to make conditions, or well, you're not satisfying me, so we pull back, and then I'm not going to satisfy you, and then it gets, and then it's this vicious spiral where you're depriving one another and not meeting each other's needs, and it becomes totally self-centered and selfish and detrimental to your relationship. So, God commands us: serve your spouse by fulfilling your God-given duty, meeting their needs, and take the risk. Be courageous, or be courageous, be vulnerable, be intimate and honest with your spouse, and ask them. Am I satisfying you? Am I fulfilling you? And if not, how so can I do that on a regular basis? And by the way, the answer is going to be different. And again, this is the typical scenario. The man is going to have a different answer than the wife. Sometimes the wife, she will have a very different, uh, surprising answer that the man or the husband never would have guessed in a million years. Really? That's what you want me to do to satisfy you? Okay, what, would, what can I do more to satisfy you? Well, at the dinner table, hold my hand gently and let's pray before dinner. And they're like, Really? Yes. <laughs> How important is that? So those are the kind of things that husbands need to learn their wife. That is the terminology in 1 Peter 3. Husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. Present tense, get to know your wife. Learn her. Be a student of her. How long does that take? Lifetime and eternity, by the way. But you also have to be proactive and honest and ask questions and be sensitive. And none of us has mastered this. But God has given us a practical solution to be on the right course right here. So husbands and wives, be fulfilling one another on a regular basis to help prevent immorality from intruding into your relationship and your marriage. One of the greatest things, wives, that you can do to your husband to keep him morally pure is to keep him satisfied on a regular basis. Christianity Today has had article after article, interview after interview over the years uh, of asking men who were being honest and vulnerable uh, who are married and Christians and many of these men, pastors and in the ministry, uh, are you involved in pornography? Are you involved in some kind of deviant sexual morality and w immorality? And when they're honest, they say yes. A very high percentage of them say yes. And the solution is, are you communicating that to your wife? Are you depending upon your wife to protect you, to satisfy you, to put a safeguard around you, to protect you from your own sin and from Satan himself? And too many spouses aren't communicating at that level. No wonder it's run amok. I'll never forget when I was in seminary, young, newlywed, and we had a small discipleship group that met on a, a weekly basis for an entire semester. Our discipleship leader was man of God, pastor for 20 years. He was from New Zealand, came to uh, the seminary to study for three years and then moved back. And so he was our discipleship leader and had a wonderful relationship with his wife and wonderful kids and uh, just a truly godly man. And we were in our small discipleship group. And one of the guys, I'll, I'll never forget it, we were all married. There's about four of us. And he, he shared, he became vulnerable. But sometimes that's hard for guys to do. So this is one of those rare moments where one of the guys was being vulnerable. And he asked for help. And he said, I am really struggling with lust week after week. And I, I can't seem to overcome it. And our discipler, uh, the man of 20 years of marriage and the godly man, he said, well, 
You're married, yes? Well, yeah, I am. Okay, then you need to have sex more often with your wife. And we were all like shocked. It was like, whoa! I've never heard that before. Really? I mean, that's your answer? You know where he got that? He got that right from here, 1 Corinthians 7. That's how simple it was. God gave her to you to be satisfied, fulfilled, and to enjoy. You need to take advantage of that. He was shocked. He was alarmed. He was pleased. He thought, oh, i got to have that conversation with my wife. And so we talked here and there throughout the year. And, uh, his wife was open to, to doing that and fulfilling a biblical mandate. So very simple, godly advice that so rarely would be communicated when confronted with that kind of problem from the world's point of view and even many uh, Christian counselors who wouldn't uh, just think so simply and so biblically from God's point of view. So serve your spouse and perform your sacred duty and obligation. Let's go on to point number three in uh, verse four. Paul says the wife does not have authority over her own body. Again, here's another reason why uh, husbands and wives should have ongoing continual intimacy with one another and why this is a mandate. Uh, Point number three, serve your spouse and preserve sanctioned authority. There is delegated and sanctioned authority in your relationship, in your marriage relationship. There are rights and privileges. There are boundaries to your authority. There are things that are legitimate for you to have authority over and things that are not legitimate for you in terms of how you conduct yourself. And so that's what Paul's addressing in verse 4. So here's, here's the authority structure in your marriage regarding your body. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Isn't that a, a blessed, wonderful truth, men that are married? Your wife's body belongs to you. Her body doesn't belong to herself. Why? Because you are one flesh. That's why. And then Paul goes on, it's reciprocal. And again, this is what shocked the culture in Paul's day. That many of the Jews didn't think that women had equal rights and privileges as the men. And even that was probably even worse in the Gentile uh, pagan world where women weren't even considered human beings sometimes. As a matter of fact, you don't even dress and direct uh, attention or teaching directly to a woman. They need to get it secondhand. The fact that Paul is addressing the women directly uh, was a faux pas as far as many would be concerned in his day. But it's reciprocal. So the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband, he doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So here's a practical truth. Meditate on this. Get this in your brain, husbands and wives, your body does not belong to you. It belongs, it is the property of your spouse. My wife owns my body and vice versa. That's clear from Paul. Again, this is a command. This is not an option. This is a binding spiritual truth. Uh, If this has not been the framework or the mindset of your or marriage, regardless of how long you've been married, then you need to reform your thinking in your marriage and how you conduct your marriage and how you relate to one another. Your spouse owns your body. Your body is not your own. It's a God-given authority. And there are other... I thought this was interesting. There's a couple of other uh, truths about this. If you are a Christian, you don't own your body. The Holy Spirit owns your body. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 7 when we were there a little earlier. Look back just a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 20, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body, Christian, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You were bought with the price. Glorify God in your body. So you don't own your body, the Holy Spirit does if you're a Christian. You don't own your body, your spouse does if you're married. And then uh, Acts chapter 20 says you don't own your body if you're a Christian. The Lord Jesus Christ does because He bought your body and your soul and everything about you with His precious blood. We don't own ourselves, but our spouse does, Jesus does, the Holy Spirit does, and God Almighty owns you as well. That's a, a great perspective to have to deal with our self-centeredness and our selfishness. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to our spouse. Incredibly important. And as a result, we need to honor each other that way. So let's go on to the next point. Uh, after point number three, that serve your spouse and preserve sanctioned authority. And, and then finally, number four, look at verses five and six. So Paul gave the command for husbands and wives... Keep on having physical intimacy with your spouse in a regular, ongoing, continual manner and do not stop. 
And do that because you owe it to your spouse. You are indebted to your spouse. You are obligated, and it is your responsibility to do that in a continual, ongoing, reciprocal manner. And the reason that is so is because your body is not your own. Your spouse has 100% authority over your own body and vice versa, and that's why. This is so, and this is God's plan. And then he goes and now gives a a negative command in verse 5. He gave the positive command in verse 2, and now he complements it with the negative command. And here's what he says in verse 5. This is the New American Standard, and they, they do an excellent job on the translation here. Stop depriving one another. So it's like Paul the preacher kind of is getting emotional now, and he's shaking his fist, or he's beckoning with his hand, as it says in the book of Acts when he was preaching. He wasn't even Italian, so he's got his hands going all over the place. And he says, stop depriving one another. Modern vernacular, knock it off. Literally, that's what he's saying. They were being sinful towards one another. Some of you who are married, you have, you have begun depriving your spouse of sexual fulfillment. Why are you doing that? Stop it. That is wrong. That is godless. That is sinful. It is destructive. It sets you up for temptation and a fall. So stop doing it. So if you're thinking after the sermon, so and you're married, hmm, how can I apply this sermon today? Well, here's the command. Stop depriving your spouse. Now, because it is a command, it is not optional. And because it is a command, if you violate this, that is sinful. If you've been doing this on a regular basis, hopefully you're convicted by the Holy Spirit of God. Hopefully you go to God first because anytime we as Christians commit a sin, we are sinning first and foremost against God Almighty. That's what David said in the Psalms. Against you and you only have I sinned. And we need to confess our sin to God. Father, forgive me. God, for Jesus, forgive me for not understanding this, for or being disobedient to it, or being hard-hearted and bitter and not fulfilling my basic marital obligation of satisfying and fulfilling my spouse since the day that you gave her or him to me as a blessed gift when we got married and entered the covenant union of marriage where we became one flesh before you, knowing that when I serve my spouse, I serve myself, said Paul in Ephesians 5. God, forgive me. And then after you ask God's forgiveness, then you need to repent to your spouse. Really. Ask for forgiveness. Confess your sin. Put it behind you. Get rid of the bitterness. Get, get rid of the harbored unforgiveness. And it will liberate your marriage. It will liberate your relationship. The Spirit of God will be able to come in and flourish like never before. Really. We know this from personal examples. Books that I've read. People, Christian testimonies I have heard. Christian couples over the years that I have counseled. And not because I brought great wisdom, but it was just sometimes being in a position providentially just to point out what Scripture says about an issue. I will never forget years ago where I was at a previous church, I was doing a, a Bible study for men in the morning and we were going through a book that was assigned. Then I got a topic that was assigned. And the topic intersected with this truth about godly men and how they are supposed to treat their wives. And it was on 1 Corinthians 7. So I taught on this very passage. I had a group of about 15 men in the circle. And I went through this passage rather quickly and told about these truths that if you are married, you need to be fulfilling your wife regularly and your wife needs to be fulfilling and satisfying you on a regular basis in terms of your sexual desires. And then afterwards, I was cornered by a man who was probably in his mid-70s at the time. He had been married for going on 50 years. He, he couldn't believe it. What Paul said, he said, I have been a Christian for 60 years. I have never heard this before. Why didn't somebody tell me about this a long time ago? Why didn't somebody tell my wife about it 50 years ago? And he was kind of upset and irritated. He felt like he got ripped off. I have been deprived and defrauded for 50 years. I'm like, whoa, I'm, I'm just teaching the Bible. And at the same time, he was a wee bit set for your liver. He wanted to go home and have a Bible study with his wife. Sit her down, put her in the corner. Hey, here's what 1 Corinthians 7 says. Understand, obey. Defraud. It was interesting. He actually did use that word defraud. And the Apostle Paul uses the exact same word. Stop depriving one another. The Greek, the Greek meaning is stop defrauding one another. Quit ripping each other off. You want to think about, so God, how can I be a wonderful wife? Start here. Husbands, how can I be a, a good pleasing spiritual husband start here 
Start here. Stop depriving one another except by... Okay, and so then he's going to give some conditions by which uh, you can abstain. So Paul's main argument is to abstain in marriage from sexual intimacy is wrong, it is sinful. But there are very few exceptions. And here's the exceptions. So when can we abstain from sexual intimacy in our marriage? Well, he tells us. Uh, Stop depriving one another. Keep on having physical, ongoing intimacy with one another as husband and wife. Except, here's the following, except by agreement. Okay, If you are going to abstain with your wife, it has to be mutual. If one of the partners doesn't agree to the terms, then, oh well, too bad. You can't abstain. If you abstain anyway without the authority and the, the approval of your spouse, you are being sinful. So, key point number one. If you are going to abstain, it has to be mutually agreed upon. And it has to be an agreed upon reason why. Paul's reason here, he says, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So the only example he gives is prayer. Say you want to get into extended time of prayer, uh, you are able to do that. Say you and your spouse are at a time in your life for whatever reason on a certain occasion where uh, one of you just feels spiritually overwhelmed and you know what, I don't feel like eating. I don't feel like sleeping. I don't feel like having physical intimacy with my spouse. I don't feel like dealing with life. I need to get away. I need to pray. And then if your spouse is sensitive to that and you agree upon it, then you can abstain. So, But it has to be a mutual agreement. Uh, not only does it have to be a mutual agreement for a specific reason, it also has to be for a, a agreed upon time. And that time, it is a short time. It is a finite time. It is a temporal uh, limited amount of time. It can't be indefinite. Okay, we're going to abstain because I need to be spiritual and I need to pray. Well, how long is that going to go on? Well, I don't know. I'll let you know when I'm done. No, then that ain't going to work because Paul says right here, uh, stop de- depriving one another except by a mutual agreement for a time. Pros kairos, from kairon, the Greek word, which is very specific and it's talking about a very specific, allocated, delineated, specified, short period of time. It has to be agreed upon. Okay, we will abstain for the next two days. We will abstain for a day. We will abstain for the next couple of... Whatever it is that you agree upon. And then you need to come back together and continue your relationship physically with one another. Stop depriving one another except for agreement for a time, short period of time really, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So, uh, the, New King, or the King James put fasting in there except for prayer and fasting. Fasting is not in the original text. You can scratch it out with your pen or pencil if you want to because it's just not there. So that's why all the other English translations properly don't include the word fasting, whether it's the ESV, the NIV, the uh, NASB. So it's just prayer. By the way, fasting is never... Get this, this might alarm some of you. Fasting is never a command that is given in the New Testament to the Christian or the Christian church, ever. The closest thing is when Jesus said to the Jews of His day, uh, when you fast, fast the following manner. And the Jews, as far as we know, had one command in the Old Testament once a year where they could fast. Other than that, fasting was not a regular obligation commanded in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law, and fasting is never a command for Christians in the New Testament. But fasting is an opportunity if Christians want to participate in that. But the idea that I'm going to abstain from food so that I will be more holy, or I'm going to abstain from food so God will hear my prayers more, or I'm going to abstain from food so I can manipulate God, which some people think will happen, or some mystical spiritual thing is going to happen as a result of not eating food, that is nowhere in the Bible. So I want to be clear on that. God will answer your prayer. You don't need to manipulate Him through fasting or or anything else like that. And if you want to fast, you are at liberty to do that before God. And it has to be between you and the Lord. So going back to this Mutual agreement of time of abstaining. And it says, make sure it is a kairos amount of time, a a definitive short period of time, and then come back together again as husband and wife, middle of verse 5, so that, get this, Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of sexual self-control. That's what he's talking about. If If you are married and you're in a marriage relationship and if you abstain from fulfilling your spouse for too long of a period of time, then that spouse will be subjected to satanic temptation and they will fall prey to sexual temptation, and they very well probably will fall into some kind of sexual sin. Whether it is pornography, for some married couples, it's adultery, and everything else in between. So here's the irony. Paul says, to prevent pornography from overtaking your marriage relationship, fulfill your spouse. 
But many Christian wives will say, I, I don't want to fulfill my husband because he's involved, he, I found out he was involved in pornography. So I'm going to abstain because he's been delving in pornography. When Paul's saying, no, you've got it backwards. You need to help your husband refrain from pornography. Therefore, you as the wife need to minister to him. That will help him. That is the solution. Stop depriving your spouse. And again, every command that I'm saying is vice versa. It is reciprocal for both husband and wife. And that's what he's saying here. So we need to be very careful and look out for our spouse and protect him. I know that Satan is on the... Go to 1, Corinthians, uh, or, I mean, 1 Peter real quick to be reminded of the reality of the ministry of Satan, which is a false ministry, a pseudo-ministry, a, de- a destructive one. It is damning. It is real. It is continual. It is nonstop. Uh, it is invisible. So many times we forget about it. We don't pay heed to it. We don't give it enough attention. We don't take it seriously. And so Satan is doing his work half the time when we're not paying attention. And we need to be aware of his doings all the time. Great reminder, First Peter chapter 5. Christians, be of sober spirit. Wake up. Be spiritually alert. Pay attention. Your adversary, your enemy, the devil, Satan, prowls around, present tense, like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan is continually on the attack. He's on the attack of Christian marriages. He is on the attack of uh, every believer, Christian homes, the church, church leadership. He is relentless. And one of the ways that Satan commonly attacks is he attacks Christian marriages. And one of the ways that he commonly attacks, he attacks moral purity in the marriage relationship. He attacks the sexual intimacy between husband and wife. And he does it a zillion different ways. And he'll just keep going and going and he will not relent. He'll find a weakness. He'll look for a weakness. He'll look for a personality quirk or whatever it is. And he will just keep pounding away as he tries to destroy and ravage that marriage relationship. And one of the ways that he does this is in uh, the sexual area of a married couple. So husband, wife, think about it. If you are abstaining out of wrong reasons from fulfilling your spouse, you're on Satan's team. Because that's what he's trying to do. Think about that. That is alarming. Paul says, stop depriving one another. Well, here are common reasons I believe that I've heard. I've either experienced through counseling, read in books, heard testimonies from people just over the years. These are common reasons in Christian marriages that spouses deprive one another sexually. Violating verse 5. Anger, revenge, bitterness in the marriage relationship. Revenge. So, um, yeah, I'll get back on him. I'll show her. That's terrible in a Christian relationship. Really, it's uh, punitive to punish your spouse. Uh, Here's a practical one, uh, or it's not necessarily the motives aren't as uh, evil. It's just, uh, well, I'm too tired. I'm too tired. Okay, well then that's when you need to communicate as a couple. And, you know, okay, then you need to talk about your day, plan your schedule, plan the day, plan the week, and be sensitive to one another and get around the tiredness factor, especially when you're having children. Life gets weary. So you've got to talk and communicate around that excuse. But in and of itself, that's not a legitimate excuse. You've got to work through it. Um, here's one that I've actually heard many times. Don't, I don't think he deserves it. Wow. Christian wife, you're saying that about a Christian husband? That is wrong thinking. Uh, Your husband deserves it by virtue of the fact that you got married. He doesn't have to earn that right. That is wrong thinking. That is sinful thinking. Christian wife, don't say that. Or Christian husband, whoever is saying it. Uh, Here's another one. I don't respect him. Or I don't respect her. Well, for wives, did you know that respecting your husband is not an option for uh, Ephesians chapter 5? It is a command. So respecting your husband is not based on his performance, how godly he is, how great he is, how sinless he is not, or whatever it is. By virtue of the fact that you got married, you made a covenant to respect your husband. And husbands, you made a covenant to love and cherish your wife. It is not conditional. So we need to be reminded of these really basic things that creep into our relationship with one another. Here's another one that people don't think about of why one spouse is depriving another. This is very practical. Get this. One spouse has a stronger libido than the other. Or one spouse has stronger sexual desires than the other spouse. That is a huge problem. This takes us to look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. This is, I think 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7 is a key verse in this entire chapter. 
Paul says categorically, there are two kinds of gifts as a human being. You are either gifted as a single, you are gifted with the gift of singleness, or you are gifted with the gift of marriage. That's all there is to it. The question is, do you know yourself? Have you assessed yourself? Have you evaluated yourself before God as a Christian and thought, okay, God, do I have the gift of singleness or do I have the gift of marriage? Because Paul says categorically, it's very clear. And I had the opportunity very recently in the last few weeks to talk to a young Christian brother, 27 years old, not in this church, so don't worry. Uh, and we were talking, and the 27 single, handsome guy, godly young man. So, uh, wow, you're not married? Do you have a desire to be married? And he said, well, I think so. It's like, well, that was not very convincing. What do you mean you think so? Why? Well, I, I guess I want to be married someday. Really? Man, I knew I wanted to be married when I was like five years old. It was just categorically clear. Uh, and that desire just grew stronger and stronger as I got older. And he, he's telling me he's not sure. And I said, well, do you have the gift of singleness or not? And he said, oh, well, I don't know. And I said, well, you have tested yourself to see if you do. Well, I don't know how to do that. Well, I'll sh- 1 Corinthians 7, let's go there. What is the test of whether you have the gift of singleness or not? It is verse 9. Verse 8 and 9, but I say to the unmarried uh, and to widows that it is good for them if they remain single, verse 9, but if they do not have self-control, get married, for it is better to marry than to burn with sexual passion. That is the test to see if you have the gift of singleness or not. So I told this 27-year-old man, is it possible for you as a 27-year-old man to remain the rest of your life content to not be married and to uh, exercise your sexual passions and desires? Can you maintain sexual self-control, sexual purity for the rest of your life without getting married? And you can rein in your sexual passions and desires? And he said, yeah, I think so. And I was like, wow, can I shake your hand? I don't know many guys like you. I've been like three in my life. And I think this guy is for real. I've known him a while. And he said, yeah, okay, that was helpful. So now he's thinking of himself in a new way that I, that I might have the gift of singleness. Because he doesn't have these strong, burning urges and desires of sexuality that need to be vented and fulfilled frequently. And he could be content the rest of his life. That is very rare for men that I've met and known, and being a man of myself. So, Paul says, uh, if you have the gift of singleness, be aware of it and test yourself and see. And then, uh, if you can't answer that, if you can't rein in your sexual passions with perfect self-control, then you don't have the gift of singleness. And then Paul says, if you don't have the gift of singleness, <laughs> you've got to get married. You've got to, it's a command. I didn't, I didn't say Paul did. Verse 9. Then get married. So those of you that are single right now and you think you cannot have self-control, then you need to get married. You need to be praying for God's help. And He needs to sustain you and protect you in the meantime and, and pray that He brings the perfect godly partner to you as soon as possible, as some of you might desire. But here's the problem. Some people, Christians get married. Some people are totally unaware. They've never even thought about whether they have the gift of singleness or not. And some people, some Christians with the gift of singleness, meaning they don't really have these strong, ongoing sexual desires and passions. And then they marry somebody who doesn't have the gift of singleness. And they're marrying somebody who needs sexual fulfillment on a regular, ongoing basis. And here they are, they're like a spiritual camel. They can go miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and miles without water and be fine. And the other one is like a Cadillac and needs to fill up on the gas tank every two miles. And they don't even understand that about each other. And they're hit and miss and they're frustrating each other. One is actually really frustrating the other one who doesn't have the gift. They are oblivious, they are unaware, they don't understand that. They don't even understand their own spouse. Now, if you're in that situation, you will revolutionize your relationship and your marriage. If the light finally goes on and you realize, wow, I have the gift of singleness, my spouse doesn't, wow, that explains a lot, or vice versa. Very important. But that plays into this command from Paul, stop depriving one another. And so that command is, uh, could be to people who are married and one of them is actually has the gift of singleness, but they got married anyway. You need to meet the needs of your partner. Your partner is one with you. So, uh, anyway, those are some of the main reasons that are commonly communicated about uh, why spouses deprive one another. And then Paul says this in verse 6. This is a very misunderstood verse, so let's understand it uh, as we wrap up and close here. Paul said, okay, stop depriving one another. You can only abstain for a mutually agreed upon reason for a very short period of time. Otherwise, one of you or both of you are going to be subjected to satanic sexual temptation in your marriage relationship. 
verse 6. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Uh, I'm not, you are, this is not a binding command. What does he mean by that? What he's saying is, the option to abstain for prayer is not a command. You don't have to abstain for prayer. That, that's up to you and your spouse. That's a freedom. That is a liberty. It is a concession. It's just pastoral advice if that has helped you. But if as a couple you don't want to abstain, that's fine either. You don't have to do that. That is not a command. That's what verse 6 refers to. It refers to verse 5. So that's very helpful to keep in mind. And then uh, finally, verse 7. Paul concludes by saying, yet I wish that all people, is what he means, all believers were even as I myself am. Paul was single at the time and had the gift of singleness. He was content. He very well could have been married uh, previously. But now he was single as an apostle. And he said, however, each person has their own gift from God. One in this manner and another in that. And so you need to begin by examining yourself to find out whether you have the gift of singleness or the gift of marriage and then uh, monitor yourself accordingly. By the way, point number four, uh, just to wrap up verses five and six, uh, serve your spouse and protect from satanic vulnerability. Isn't that, that's an amazing thought that you can protect your spouse from the attacks of Satan in a very practical manner, in a way that satisfies them and pleases them. Let me close with just uh, a couple of verses and a couple of recommendations. Like I said, you know, a lot of Christians they don't get this. Maybe they've never heard it. They don't understand it in Corinthians. They've never thought about it. They've never seen it in a counseling book. There, but there are people who get this and are very helpful. One of the I think one of the most practical, helpful books that I've ever read uh, by Steve Arterburn, Every Man's Battle. Very practical. Read through it uh, if you find it to be helpful and beneficial. Maybe a gift for Father's Day uh, for your hubby is that you get that book and don't give it to your husband. He already knows what his problem is. But the wife, you read it, and I guarantee you will understand your husband so much better if he doesn't have the gift of singleness. It'll be eye-opening. Very refreshing. And surprisingly, another person who gets this more than most people is actually Dr. Laura Schlesinger, who's not even a Christian. She grew up as a Jew. She knows the Old Testament. So she has an Old Testament ethic. And she wrote a book called uh, Proper Care and Feeding of Husbands. And it's a very simple thesis. After interviewing probably 20,000 husbands over the course of her 40-year calling in life as a counselor, in this book, she just concisely says, you know what, ladies? You, guys, you ladies are too complicated. Your husbands, they are very simple people. Really, this will revolutionize your marriage. Just keep two priorities in mind. Make them good dinners and good foods and good lunches. Feed them well and satisfy them sexually on a regular basis. And the reason she said that was because she's had about ten to 20,000 husbands call on her radio program and tell her that. How come my wife doesn't do this? How come my wife doesn't do this? How come? And then finally she says, I need to write a book. And so she did. And uh, so as you're reading it, keep in mind she's not a, a New Testament Bible-believing believer, but she does have that Old Testament ethic that comes uh, through very clearly. And even Jesus said that uh, you know unbelievers have the wisdom of the world sometimes more than believers do. He said that in the Gospel of Luke, and that would be one example. So keep that in mind. But let me close with these uh, this verse in Ecclesiastes chapter nine. I want to read that verse nine. Just a a great, wonderful reminder from, uh, I believe, King Solomon in Ecclesiastes writing at the end of his life and realized the only legitimate relationship that he ever had with a woman was his first marriage that's talked about in the Song of Solomon and everything else after that was a prostitution of the gift that God had given him. And so he gives this sage, seasoned life looking in hindsight to husbands and wives. And this is kind of his prayer and heart's desire for them. So I... I want to share this with you as, you as you close. If you are married today, husbands, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. So your wife is to be enjoyed. Marriage is to be enjoyed. Enjoy your wife all the days of your life, of your fleeting life, which God has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life. This is basic. God wants you to enjoy marriage and your spouse. Because there's a lot of toil in life in which you have labored under the sun. So that's my heart's desire and prayer for you, that God would help us and enable us through His indwelling Holy Spirit and the truth of His Word to keep our thinking and our behavior in keeping with His perfect will for our marriages. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for our time together. 
Thank you for speaking to us uh, through Corinthians. Thank you for being so practical, Lord. You know where we are. You know where we live. As physical humans, as finite, with challenges, with indwelling sin we have to battle, self-centeredness, and at the same time You've given us great gifts, salvation in Christ, the indwelling Spirit, the amazing truth of Your living Word in Scripture, the family of God in the local church, the supernatural gift of prayer that changes lives and enables fulfillment in our life. God, I pray for our marriages at Grace Bible Fellowship. I pray that they would be renewed and reinvigorated and in keeping with Your will in light of Scripture that we would be empowered by Your Holy Spirit to be reminded that obligation number one as a spouse is to serve my spouse, satisfy and fulfill our spouse as the gift that You gave us on our wedding day. Always remembering that our marriage relationship is supposed to reflect the relationship of Jesus Christ with His church. God, we need Your help to do that in a way that's appropriate and proper because we can't do it in our own strength. God, we need Your help. We plead for Your grace. May Your hand of blessing continue to be upon us. We thank You for this time in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.